you're listening to High Performance. Welcome along. I think you're going to find today rather interesting. But I'm just so happy when I look back at it. The ups and downs, the undulating kind of nature of my career has just taught me that, you know, shit's going to happen. Good things happen, bad things happen. It's literally a moment. Enjoy the good ones when they happen. The bad ones will happen. They won't last, you know, and there'll be another moment just around the corner. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Hi, I'm Jake Humphrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. With me, as always, Professor, Lecturer, Superbrain, Damien Hughes. Um, and we're both highly intrigued today to be spending the next little while with our guest, the most capped England hooker, who had an 85% winning record when captaining his country, but who also had bands totaling almost two years of playing time, which I find a sort of an amazing mix. I can't wait to get into that. What are you looking forward to getting out of this? I think one of the key things of um, high performance is emotional control. And I think our next guest has learnt that whilst on the job. And I think I'm really intrigued to get into some of the lessons that he applied. Maybe we should start right there then. Um, hello, Dylan Hartley. Certainly not an athlete. What? And you're a professor. You didn't tell me you're a professor. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you're not getting in my head. So Damien was saying that he's looking forward to discussing the fact you've had to learn self-control on the job. Is that a fair, is that a fair point? I've learned some pretty valuable lessons on the job, certainly. But not uh, self-control? 
Well, I've been in trouble. It's a bit like a cat. I got I got eight bands. So didn't quite get nine, but we could say retirement was my final life. Um, and I never I got in trouble. Obviously, a lot. That is a lot. Uh, I racked up a lot of suspensions, um, but still managed to forge um, a pretty long career in the game at what we would probably say the well, one of the highest levels, um, which I'm pretty proud of. But never did the same thing twice. Did I learn my lessons? I'm not sure. I always seem to find myself getting in trouble, but not for the same thing. So you learned not to do the same thing again, but you didn't learn not to get yourself in trouble again. I, I, this is so interesting for me because I, when someone says to me, an elite athlete, I think about someone taking responsibility for the manager, for the team, for themselves. And you did exactly that. You captained your country on numerous occasions. So you were able to take responsibility at the very highest level. But then at the same time, for whatever reason, you kept on sort of getting yourself into trouble. I'm just so interested about how you managed to do both or maybe why you think you did both. I think um, the, the captaincy stuff and the, that responsibility for, for England came at, you know, later in my career. I think I had one sort of blip in that time. Um, and I always took my, my role, you know, really seriously. Um, I was really organised, um, kind of, I was really note, you know, notebook focused. So I always wrote everything down. In a day and age where phones and iPads all of a sudden are creeping up in meetings and you hear people typing away, like tick, 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 it would always piss me off. I'd always be kind of old school, write things down. I'd always prepare before meetings. I'd always take notes. And I took that really seriously and I, I learned that over a period of time you know what I've always kind of uh, done and still do now is I watch and I evaluate people how they sit how they stand how they deliver you know how do they open and I always think that's good or that's bad how could I do it better than them should I try that so I'm always trying to to take something from wherever I go and at 23 years old when um, I was kind of thrown into the the deep end with the captaincy at Northampton Nast to kind of captain a group of men at that young age was quite daunting but I looked at kind of senior professionals and I learnt. So what was the rationale to choose you at 23? Uh, I was a regular player, um, I was vocal, I'd like to think I was never a glamorous player but I was I was committed and I, I kind of joke about it, I think I forged a career for 15 years without an ounce of athletic ability but through work ethic and, and mentality, I managed to sustain uh, a long career because I basically worked hard and I learned how to be a good professional. And, you know, it, it comes down to, you know, like game day we all see, but my hardest role with the captaincy, especially with England, was Sunday to Friday. That kind of every day was a game for me. That was performing, uh, whatever you want to call it, acting, performing, turning up every day and making sure myself and the team were preparing well. So on Saturday we played well and that kind of fell on my shoulders to, to do that. So I don't know what the rationale was. Maybe maybe the person who, who chucked the captaincy to me saw a good work ethic and a, a good mindset. Because that sounds to me very much like um, a concept that I've written about is I use the phrase a cultural architect in a team, somebody that sets the, sets the standards, sets the tones by their own behaviours. So how did you cope with people that didn't live up to your work ethic, your your willingness to go the extra mile? I think in these high-performance environments, whether it's Northampton or whether it was with England, ultimately it 
didn't fall with me. You know, we set the standards and if you've got the majority of the team with you, it's obvious who falls outside of that. That could be in reference to drinking culture, it could be reference to training standards, uh, dress standards, these sorts of things. You make yourself really obvious. So if you don't come along with the rest, you make yourself clear as day that you're, you're not in it. And ultimately in these things, if you stand out like a sore thumb for the wrong reasons, you don't last. So there wasn't a sort of a collective responsibility of the players. You know, taking a, a football story, I work a lot with Rio Ferdinand. And I remember saying to him, when a new player came into the dressing room at Manchester United, what did Sir Alex Ferguson used to say to let that player know the standards that have been set? And Rio went, he said, didn't say anything. That was up to us. We let them know. If they weren't running off the pitch at halftime, we let them know. If they were celebrating a win, he talks about signing a new player who celebrated winning. And they pinned you up against the wall and they said, what the fuck are you doing? We don't celebrate wins in the Man United dressing room. We celebrate titles and we celebrate trophies. Don't come in here celebrating a victory because that's not how we operate. And I, that was really interesting for me because as a non-professional sports person, I've always assumed the manager takes that role. But the players are key to carrying out the manager's desires, right? I don't know. Rugby might be a bit different. Is it? But the team is the team's. It's not the manager's team. The, the, there's on-field stuff that is kind of shared and sometimes dictated by coaches. But culturally, I think the team runs itself. I think the best cultures are the ones that you, you feel. You walk in, it sounds kind of almost cliche, but you see it and you smell it and you, you know. When you, when you walk in that changing room or you go into that training field, you know what's expected. And if you've got anything about you, you look for the way that people conduct themselves and you think that's what's acceptable. And if someone's taken a, a liking to you, they might give you a little nudge and say, you know, this is how we do it here or you shouldn't be doing that, you know, next time do this. Um, a culture is something that you see. So when you've been part of a bad culture then, Dylan, how have you, what steps have you taken, especially as a senior leader, to address that and tackle it? Do you know what? Bad cultures is probably a, a bit too far to take it because I can think of examples in my, my early England rugby days, the culture, what it was what it was at the time. We still trained hard, we worked hard, we prepared hard for the time that we're in. But looking back, the alcohol culture surrounded, the, you know, times have changed since then. At the time, it was accepted. But looking back at it now, it wasn't right. And as a young kind of, you know, young England player coming through at 21, 22, my role models in the team, the bulk of the team were doing that. And then Johnny Wilkinson was over there doing his thing and I'm like why didn't I just tap into that and tap into his psyche and as I I grew and I matured I obviously got to a point where I looked back and I thought fuck I should have spent more time with Johnny and and tapped into that but the bulk of the team um were, were shifted one direction and I went with that because I was young and, and I was gullible and yeah so when you went into Northampton then Dylan that the, I imagine the culture there isn't that dissimilar to what you've experienced with England in that setup, and you've been appointed as a leader. What kind of things were you doing then to bring more of that Wilkinson mindset that, that you said you wish you'd have identified early on? I think you've got to strike a balance between um, uh, international sport and, and club sport. I think international sport is, is really cutthroat and it is 110 miles an hour you know whenever I played for England it was for three weeks or longest period might have been seven to eight weeks 
So it's in there, it's intense, it's mentally you're on, physically you're on the whole time. But you can't sustain that within a club environment week in, week out. So you've got to be able to not lower your expectations, but change your expectations of what is acceptable. And the high performance thing with, with England rugby, if you're not coming to the party, you stick out like a sore thumb and you're gone and someone else is kind of chomping at the bit to come in and have a shot. Uh, whereas at club footy, you need to kind of educate people. You've got 35-year-olds and you've got 18-year-olds straight out of school. So you can't blame an 18-year-old for not seeing and smelling things straight away. You need to educate them on what it's like to prepare. You know, I caught a kid on Snapchat before a game the other day. He goes, yeah, but I like to be relaxed before a game. I'm like, you don't even know what it's like to prepare for a game. You don't even know what relaxed is. And when the 35-year-old two-time World Cup winner looks over at you and sees you on Snapchat... He doesn't think you're preparing well. So when did you learn to do that then? Because at 23, you've you've been thrown into this and now you're describing calling out a young kid for not, not preparing thoroughly. So when did that transition of being a leader, a vocal leader happen? I don't know. I've always said it how I saw And if, if people were talking about it over here saying we saw this happening, I'm like, what have you told them? And a lot of people don't do that. And I will find the right time for a start and just say that's not right. Yeah. And just don't say it's wrong, but maybe question it. Is it the right thing to be doing? And did you want people to be like that with you when you were playing? If someone had an issue, come and speak to Dylan Hartley 100%. about it. 100%. Yeah. And how did you deal with it? You take it for what it is. And again, like, you come across terms like performance conversations. So no one's feelings get hurt. But you, you hear about things like that. And Eddie Jones taught me something. You know, when, when teams finish training and they huddle together and they debrief training and you resolve things post-training in the huddle and so tomorrow we'll work on that we'll be better it's too late by then traditionally we've always done it but it's a, it's a shit tradition you should always like review after training but how come you're not reviewing during training it's too late by the end of training yeah. to wait till tomorrow to revisit it like call it as you see it if you're not getting what you want tell the person so performance goes up so when these occasions we, we alluded to at the start where you've been sent off or you've been facing a long suspension who told you then who called you out on it those so all, all my incidents were kind of like blip moments it's not like it was an, a negative downward spiral that led to them yeah i'd always trained hard in the week and prepared well and then if anything probably got a little bit too much into it tried impacting the game in a good way but there's, there's one the other day where look I, I swung my arm and I almost decapitated um, Sean O'Brien, which I apologise for. And it looks ugly looking back at it. But I remember watching it. Northampton at the time was struggling. I was club captain. I'd been away at, I think it was the Autumn Internationals. So I'd have four games away. My club team that I'm captain of are struggling. Big European fixture against uh, uh, Leinster. You know, we're 20, 30 points down. I'm on the bench and I'm thinking I'm, I'm responsible for this this performance so I'm like get me on and when I go on I want to make an impact let's do something good let's do something really physical we've been really soft in the contact area opportunity presents itself to smack someone physically dominate someone technique all wrong and I almost take his head off red card within 30 seconds of being on the field it's like that is not good and that sounds like there's, a, there's an awful lot of context that you've explained around that but would you not have wanted one of your teammates to say that was a lack of discipline or that was a lack of control that you came on and you were too indisciplined to just raise the tempo without having to swing an arm like that? 
thing is, I was, I was always pretty self-aware. I knew I'd done something wrong. And then off the back of that, I worked for probably eight weeks on tackle technique on my days off to go and work with England defence coaches. So my life became hell off the back of that. Right. The realisation that it was a, a technique issue. For me, the intent behind it was good. That's what made me the player I was because with zero athletic ability, I had a good mindset and a good work ethic. So what about the incidents where it wasn't bad technique, where it was... So I bit someone's finger. Loss of, right, so loss of control, right, in that? No. What was that then? Wow. I bit someone's finger. He had his hand in my mouth and he's pulling my head and I reckon if I put my hand in your mouth and pulled it, you oh, might bite yeah. down. So I got banned for that and I, I admitted that. I said, look, this has happened, but there's a hand in my mouth and it's pulling my head. I didn't even mean to bite him, but I've bit him. I'm sorry. So that happens. So is there ever an incident where you where you think actually you did lose control? Or of all of these bands yeah, actually? Yeah, like I've, I've punched people, I've elbowed people. Um, do you know someone, I worked with one guy and I don't know if he's a professor not justifying any of it yeah. but there's it's understanding myself and being self-aware he explained to me that I might be like a caveman and, and everything out there is like the jungle so I act on instinct so when someone grabs me from, from behind and I don't like it I say get off it's a threat I, I deal with it so maybe a hand in my mouth I deal with it um, can, can you well, it, there is the something theory? around that. There is around that when you're under attack, your primitive instincts come out and you either go freeze, flight or fight and you're describing that fight response. We will all perceive a threat in different ways, but our response is that some people might fake an injury, for example, in a game and look to get off the field when they've been considered like a big hit's gone on them. Some players will go in their shell and go freeze response or some will become wild and, and sometimes ill-disciplined or, or lash out. But what intrigues me is that you described, say like that swinging arm that you described where you then did eight weeks of tackle technique to improve it. And But the examples of where you've lost discipline like that, like sticking your finger in somebody's eye or whatever it was, that was reckless. Right. So, so, so what it was on was James the same Haskell level of, as well. Right, well, there's a certain justification that you might argue. He's, well, he's one of my best friends. <laughs> yeah. Right. We forged a great relationship off the back of it. Right. But what was the penance that you put yourself through there? What was the learning that you then said, I'm going to do my equivalent of eight weeks tackle technique to improve next time I'm in that position? Uh, so, so what I learned is like you go through this, um, you kind of get the trial by social media thing. And you get the like a, a shame, a guilt, an anxiety, kind of sickness. Like going to rugby court is like going to like high court. It's full of suits. There's a whole lot of words you do not understand. It's not a comfortable place. So once I'd done that process a couple of times, and bearing in mind I got banned eight times, gearing up to go down to the Hilton at Heathrow was a horrible experience. Or you know the holiday in it in Coventry, like literally sent to Coventry, was was not. An enjoyable process so as soon as you're you're sighted you know it's like oh shit not again it's like a nervous sicky feeling because it's the unknown and then when you come out it's like you've got eight weeks for this you've got 10 weeks for this and that is the good the good part you can actually then put it behind you and look forward but your mindset goes to the positive immediately even if it's an eight-week ban straight away you're like right done let's go that was the best bit as soon as you get your your time it was like right i can plan um, I really enjoyed everyone saying you'll never play for so-and-so again you're not good enough we don't want players like that playing and I actually really enjoyed the narrative 
of coming back from it. So I always made like mental goals. I used to write certain things down. Um, it wasn't anything long-winded. I will play for England again, write down a date, you know, Six Nations, 2000 and whatever it was, and I'd train towards it. I always think one of the mistakes we make in modern life particularly is we love to deflect responsibility. Oh, I can't do that because, oh, I'm a victim. You know, we revel now in, in victim culture. Do you think at any point you were a victim or have you had to put yourself in the mindset of you take complete responsibility for anything that happened on the football field? I've had to. And I understand that it kind of came with the territory, almost made a rod for my own back. And whatever happened, happened, whether I agreed with it or not. If anything, it was one of those things I, I kind of challenged myself to front up. So I've got so many friends that can't do, and it's pathetic, but social media. Like I was like, fuck it, let's front up, let's read it, let's reply to a few people, it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> media, put your shoulders back, put your suit on, front up. Um, 2013 when I got red carded in Northampton's first ever grand final in the premiership, you know, I thought I could get in a cab and go home or I could front up, go collect my medal and let people say their thing. But I always just thought I'd just front up and deal with it. Because if anything, these are all kind of small lessons in life that, that sport teach you. And now I'm on the other side. Sport is such a bubble. I look back at it and go, it was all, it was all bullshit. Yeah, yeah. But at the time when it was my world, it was bloody difficult. Playing in a rugby town like Northampton where we are the dominant sporting team, having to go to the supermarket after losing the town's final was a difficult thing. But I thought I've got to do it. I've got to deal with the old old boys and old girls who want to chuck the 2p at you and when I look back at it it is nothing but I felt that sort of shame and I carried it but I didn't shy away from it I thought I had to front up and even taking the, the England captaincy it was like I had that whole record behind me and I basically knew for a good month every interview I'd do would be like do you trust your discipline to, to lead this team and I kind of thought the build up to Six Nations was a fortnight of media I'll just front up and I'll do it and I'll just roll out the same answer and I'll stick by it and then I'll just start playing and I'll play well and we'll win and that will deal with that and then we'll start talking about other things. That leads into an interesting question that Eddie Jones speaks around. One of his great observations when he took over as England coach was that there was a lot of people being highly rewarded for delivering quite mediocre performances and results. So why do you think he chose you as his captain when that's an observation of the culture that he's brought in, what do you think the purpose of your selection was? I think he wanted to change. Uh, and then when you look at your group, uh, I think I ticked the box in the fact for about seven years, I captained my club. So there's kind of a little bit of experience there and we'd had a successful period. So I think I ticked that captaincy box. And then after talking to him, I think he saw the group was f fractured. I think he saw me as a people's person. Um, again, not the most talented player, but I had something, a connection with everyone in the room. I, I worked really hard at knowing my players, having a little in-joke with everyone and just probably naturally being one of the older guys as well who'd been around. The three of those things put together, maybe he saw me as that kind of foundation captain. And we only, we only agreed to do it for the one tournament. And then um, the workload came my way and shit, it was, it was some workload. 
I'd never been mentored like that. But then Eddie starts firing stuff at me. Look at this guy. Read this. Listen to this. Tell me what you think about these three things. You know, feedback after meeting. Next time you do that. And I, I, th- I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And that's why I speak so so highly of him. The, the sort of time that he invested in me to develop me as um, not only as a captain, but as a player, yeah, I'll be forever grateful. What do you think it is that Eddie did for you more than anything else? Unlocked probably my personal potential. And after a really checkered career, I basically finished my last three and a half years or, or four years with some really good memories. And if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be sat here. And how did he do that? By basically developing me. And it wasn't fun at the time. It was ugly because high performance, that's what we're here to talk about, is ugly. We, we see Saturdays as really fun, polished, you know, thing, a, a game or whatever it might be. But all the work that goes in behind the scenes is ugly and it, it hurts. You know, every, every other player is there just trying to be a good player. And I was there trying to be a good captain, trying to be a, it was almost like a member of staff, kind of preparing the team debriefing training with every different department everyone you know the organization that went into running that team like I said from Sunday to Friday because because performance was habitual you know we had to train well Monday uh, we had to train well Tuesday we had to recover like we were training on Wednesday it wasn't just pop down the spar anymore it was like timed ice baths it was bang 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 and to start with staff were kind of managing that until the players took responsibility and guess who the players was the players was me and a couple other senior players that had to get that message that culture spread throughout the team so for people listening to this who don't operate in a sports world or a rugby world what would you say about creating an elite environment that eddie jones does so well that other people could apply to the world that they operate in it starts at the top it starts with him. He is relentless. He, his work ethic is second to none. So when he's like that, it literally just trickled down to the coaches, to myself, to the senior players, to the wider group. And is there a regret for you that, I mean, it sounds like the mentorship that he gave you relatively late in your career, you were open to and you speak with real affection about how it developed you. Do you wish you'd have been on the receiving end of that six or seven years earlier? As a leader, do you th- do you feel it could have helped you become even better to have yeah, achieved a higher performance? If I'd had the ultimatum, he ultimately gave me an ultimatum saying you can finish now, you can play so many games for England, or he kind of said you can work really hard, you can develop physically as a player, you're not really going to change. And he said you can win some things towards the end of your career. So he kind of unlocked my potential. And then with him working with him and in two months with Grand Slam, the first time we'd done that in, I don't know how many years, 15 years. So I was like, shit, this is good. You know, I I want a bit of this. And then the team started, you know, day one he said, you're going to win the World Cup and you're going to be number one in the world. And he got the team to number one in the world and ultimately just didn't win the World Cup. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. To me, th- th- like, it's intriguing when you speak because looking at your story of leaving New Zealand at 15 and coming over to England and doing that on your own, that seems pretty extraordinary. So do you feel that you'd been very self-driven up until that point and you'd almost just learned on the job? Yeah, it was, it was my decision to, to school exchange here and I ultimately stayed and never went home. It was always self-driven. And do you know what? Without justifying all the things that have happened in my career, and my dad and mum are great parents, but they've never been involved in my career. You know, I could probably count on my hand how many times they've watched me play live. So I actually went through, you know, at 16 years old, at 17, I joined an academy. I went and like squatted in like university halls at 17. I found my way for a couple of years in Worcester. I signed myself to Northampton. I kind of did my early deals by myself. And then 15 years later, I forged a career. So everything that happened on the way, I never had like my parents involved. They had no idea about what money I earned. I was just overseas playing rugby. So I reckon a lot of the, if we're delving into why I've got in trouble, maybe I was just finding my own way and, and working it out myself. But it does seem that you've had this independent streak that's run through you from that young age. And it's interesting the role of a mentor that Eddie obviously played in terms of taking you to another level. Yeah, I mean, I, I had mentors earlier in my career as well, but they're more around probably creating like um, you know, more of a family environment for me at 18, 19 when I didn't have that. You know, I'm thinking about all the Christmases that, you know, my academy counterparts would go home to families and I was just by myself. And On I, Christmas I, Day? Yeah, I remember reading like... Um, you know, those things that you hear about like, oh, you got to train Christmas Day because what's your opposition doing? So I did all that sort of all that sort of crap. You know, you'd tag onto Christmases with people and you'd make it work. But yeah, I just found my own way. Is that the way you wanted it? Or was it just that's the sort of parents that you had? They were just letting you go off into the world? Yeah, they let me do my thing. Yeah. But it's funny now. So we see all these young players now, their dads are involved with contract negotiations. They want to know this. They debrief their games. You know, you don't want that from my parents. And I never got it, which I'm thankful for. But I'm just so happy when I look back at it, the ups and downs, the undulating kind of nature of my career has just taught me that, you know, shit's going to happen. Mm. Good things happen, bad things happen. It's literally a moment. Enjoy the good ones when they happen. The bad ones will happen. They won't last, you know, and that there'll be another moment just around the corner. So even when you get a moment like being omitted from Stuart Lancaster's World Cup squad for 2015... How do you deal with that? Do you go to anyone? Do you deal, do you internalise it and deal with it, with it yourself? Do you do what you did when you got the result of your bans and you immediately take a positive look at it and go, right, you watch, I'll, I'll get my way back in? That one was slightly different because it was a week. I kind of thought I could train, I'd get back, Stuart would take me to the World Cup, but he didn't. But then at the time, silver linings, I had my first child. Um, are you a father? Yeah. You a father? Yeah. yeah. So you have your first child and nothing else matters. Rather play at a World Cup, so... No, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't really? bothered. Yeah. When you mentioned there about being a father, 
You've you've had a pretty extraordinary upbringing yourself in terms of coming away at 15 and the things we've just discussed. Plus you've had some powerful mentors that push you to another level. For anyone that was listening to this podcast that is a parent that wants to take lessons that maybe they can apply to their own children, how are you going to do that? It's difficult when it's your, your own children. If anything, I just want to provide a platform where my children can... One, focus on school, because I never focused on school. Right. Uh, but secondly, provide the platform for my kids to, to play whatever sport they want and let them find their own way doing it, not force them to play a game that they don't want to play. But ultimately, if they commit to something, they're going to have to commit to it. They can't just go, oh, it's raining, I don't want to go, it's boring, I don't like it, they'll have to see the season through. And yeah. It's not really good advice for parents, but my daughter's only four, so we haven't really reached that yeah yeah of course that moment yet so i'm i'll probably need to ask you you know <laughs> what do you do because i'm a, i'm a young parent you know what about failure what's your take on failure in your kids because we all try and create a world where our kids don't fail because we don't want to see them fail good right i had this conversation with my wife the other day i was like so when you have kids you want them to have a really nice world but i was thinking cuz i've I talk about my career and why i think it's kind of forged me who I am, it's because I'd struggle. You know, I didn't have money at a young age, you know, when my academy counterparts did. So I found a way to make money and I found a way to train harder, to earn more. And that's it. I was thinking my daughter, and I've got uh, another one on the way, how do you create struggle for your kids without making them struggle? I don't know the answer to that. But I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think struggle and hardship know forges the the sports the sportsman it's very much around that growth mindset isn't it that kids that are told they're talented will coast on their talent until they hit roadblocks and their resistance to difficulties lowers whereas kids that are told you work hard to be talented when they hit obstacles do what you've done and they just work a bit harder they they dig a bit deeper for it yeah and you know what i reckon rugby's a really good example of what you're talking about there i'd say there's probably two or three kids in a rugby team that are like talented, out-and-out athletes, don't really need to watch diet, don't need to train that well. They're fast, they're strong, they're explosive, they're skillful, they get away with it. I'd say the majority of rugby players are probably more of what you're talking about, that growth mindset about working harder than their opposite. Because they're not talented or athletically gifted, they work harder. And I'd say the majority of rugby players are that guy, which is hard to understand because when you watch at the weekend, you're like, these guys are amazing. Mm. You know, everyone playing international or club rugby, you think uh, amazing athletes, but there's a reason why yeah. they look that way and the way that they execute what they do because they work incredibly hard. The average member of the public, and I would include myself and Damien in this, by the way, because we haven't done what you've done and compete at an elite level, when they say things like... Um, Wayne Rooney's a bit lazy, isn't he? Do you know what I mean? Those members of the public could never get to where he has to get to in the gym. 99% of people don't, don't see the struggle. And maybe that's how it should be. Why should they see your struggle? They should just see the joy on a Saturday, the, you know, winning a game. But it, it is a frustration of mine that people don't see the hard yards that go into success. I don't know how we, I don't know how we change that mindset for people. I love this. I went to watch Aston Villa the other day. I don't watch much football, but I'm invited to the whole end at Villa and I stood in there. I had to stand as well. We had a seat. I could have sat in it, but you don't sit in the whole end. You've got to stand. Right, right. So I was standing there and I was kind of 
mumbling away to the songs and there's people screaming at the players and I was like oh these dickheads like I was still thinking like the guy in the field I'm like you just do not understand even like running 20 meters and then sprinting back what that guy has just gone through the the psyche that that player has got to do that but it wasn't quite good enough because he's up against another guy that's doing it just the same and I think what you just said about Wayne Rooney it's the Monday in rugby Monday to or Sunday to Friday work that no one sees the mental attrition to get up on a Monday morning when you've got to walk sideways or almost crawl out of your bed down says get to training do things that hurt stretch mobilize ice bath get yourself up for a day's training and get out in the field and go and do it it's like that mental capacity to do it and if, if it was easy people wouldn't be standing in the whole end, they'd be on the field playing. This is something that um, I, I, I've spoken to athletes around this and they call it the Dunning-Kruger law, named after a couple of economists. So it reasons that if you're smart at something, you're smart enough to know why you're good at it. But on the flip side, if you're stupid, you're too stupid to know just how stupid you are. So what I'm saying is when somebody sends you a social media post that said, I could have played better than you, that's the Dunning-Kruger law because they're too stupid to realise the sacrifice, the, the Sunday to, uh, to Friday cycle. So they just see the end result and assume that I could do better than that. 100%. And but then don't. you get the odd fan that thinks the other way and you think, that guy, you're onto it. Yeah. You're switched on. <laughs> yeah. You empathise with me. You, you know. Sure. But then when you speak to athletes, this is where the stuff around mentorship fascinates me because when you speak to athletes and say, who are the five people that when they when they speak to you and say, Dylan, that wasn't good enough, that you really would switch on and listen to. And a lot of athletes I speak to might say their parents, it might be a partner, it might be a coach, or it might be a teammate that they respect. Who would you say the five people that when they give you feedback, you do sit up and pay attention? Any coach. So it's probably more than five. But someone always said to me, be coachable. Being, being a good professional is be coachable. So nod your head, say yeah, work it out in your own head whether what they're saying is good and how you can interpret that to your game. I think that's been open to, to feedback and criticism. That's what rugby's taught me, um, to have direct conversations and be open. Names, Eddie Jones, you know, he'd call it straight, you know, that's not good enough or that wasn't good enough. And then that afternoon you go and train well, then straight away afterwards, well done today. So no grudges held, it was just direct, it is what it is. And you appreciate that as a player. No kind of beating around the bush. Um, my parents never told me they were disappointed. So I don't think my parents had nothing to do with my rugby, really. They were just a support network. How did they provide support for you if they weren't involved in sort of your day-to-day -day life? By being just that. Right. Just being able to call them. Because a lot of people would think, why, why don't my parents give a shit about my life? You know, I need some support here. I need you to have an opinion. It's, it's interesting that you're... The support you needed was them not knowing about what was going on. Uh, that's interesting. No, I just I enjoyed them for what they were. They were just my parents and didn't, they offered. But you still air. felt loved and you. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not Dylan Hartley. My parents don't love me. That's why I've done everything I've done. If it's anything, it's the opposite though. They're great parents. Later in life, um, your, your wife, so my girlfriend now is my wife that, it's funny how your support network and you, you, everyone talks about their why, why they play the game, what motivates them. You're, you're obviously familiar with that. When you're young, 
I was just on like this snowball that was it was exciting I wanted to be a professional rugby player I wanted to play on TV I wanted to play at big stadiums and then the byproduct of that you want to have a nicer house you want to move out of your academy digs and get your own house I wanted to stop riding the muddy fox with the shit flat tire and get a car you know these sorts of things so my, my reasons when I was younger to play were obvious and then financial you know all that sort of comes into it and then when you're you're 33 you're like you know what why do I enjoy playing why do I enjoy being in pain every day and I'm not a special case I think it's everyone that plays rugby especially lives in pain but it's just normal so you just get on with it but my reason my my, my motivation was my wife my daughter um, it became financial it became almost like a legacy type thing my daughter got to an age where she she understood what I was doing and playing for England and playing for Northampton was great so you, my reasons changed and you asked me the five people so my coaches Eddie Jones in particular any coach my parents were always really level-headed and probably my my wife uh-huh. to, towards the end of it because when, when you transition into retirement, that is where that support network becomes, you know, your coaches aren't there anymore. You're left with your parents and my wife and, and my kids. Because you, you strip out the coaches, the rugby side of it, it's like, what have you got? Um, you sit now as a retired rugby player. Do you feel like your career is over? Do you feel like a sort of a civilian, as you describe it? Or do you still feel like a rugby player in your head? No, I, I feel like a civilian. This is a good thing. This is what... Um, this is what the the bans, the injuries, the non-selections kind of taught me is that you don't matter. Like the game's going to carry on with or without you. The big machine keeps moving and you're just a part of it, a small cog in that when you get your opportunity. So all those sort of setbacks made me think that rugby will not define me because it hasn't just been like that. It hasn't been a, a, a smooth yep. kind of ride for me. It's been rocky. So... Um, I think all those setbacks kind of almost prepared me for retirement. So when it happened, it was just another challenge, mm. just like coming back from a ban. I want to sit down, make a plan about where I want to go next. So if anything, the small lessons with all the disciplinaries kind of prepared me for for where, civilian life. Where will you go next, and what's the like? Do you think you'll still be involved in rugby? And I, I, I do enjoy talking about what we're talking about now. And like I said. Later in my career, I tapped more into the growth mindset side of things and um, the mentoring side of things. I, I still work with um, a couple of the guys just on throwing technique and, and mindset. Now at Northampton, I enjoy that, but I'm undecided about what will be next. I need time to just reevaluate, and uh, I'm not saying no to rugby or coaching or something within rugby long term, just immediately. I just need a bit of a cut ties. We've got a few quick-fire questions. Do you want to use your phone at this point, or are you just happy to crack no, on? I reckon I've got it. So if I kick off then, Dylan, what, what would you say are the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into? I'm not saying I'm a professional or a pro on this. It's what worked for me. Sure. i make that very clear to our listeners. The, the first thing is surround yourself with people that think that way, because you cannot be... I couldn't have been high performance if the environment's not high performance. And to get there, use people to, to help you be a high performer. Because that's what they're good at. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I was good at, what well, kind of good at playing rugby. But, you know, the guy who's done so many years at university to understand 
strength and conditioning, use that guy. And it wasn't until I was about 31, 32, 33, I realised that. What advice would you give to a teenage Dylan who was just starting his career? Nothing. I wouldn't tell him anything. So maybe that's a sign of what sort of dad I'm going to be. Work it out yourself. Because the, it's the struggles, it's the, all the, the little things that, that kind of form you as a person. Um, obviously, be there as a shoulder or an air and guide when the question is asked, maybe, and try and guide them. But like with my coaching at the moment, I work with a couple of hookers. I see things that they're doing that means they're not going to throw the ball well. And I don't tell them what it is. I'm saying, are you thinking about what you're doing? Tell me what you're thinking. So kind of coach themselves to so try and guide them. So I don't know what I'd say to a 16-year-old Dylan. So the next question then, how did you react to your greatest failure? I mean, it depends what you perceive failure. What do you perceive They're all good yours? things. You no. think failure is good? Yeah, 100%. It's again, it's struggle. It's, and it's easy to say now I've been through it, but I think failure is ultimately a good thing as long as you don't let it define you. So how important is legacy to you then? Uh, it was. I wanted to win the World Cup. And my little girl and, and my son to be like, yeah, dad did that. But ultimately, when they, they're old enough to Google me, they'll probably uh, just find out all the, the bad shit I did. But rugby, I never wanted to define me. But for whatever reason, I've done it for the last 16, 17 years. So, you know, it, it has defined me. It is it is my life till this point. So I need to basically, you know, my legacy will be what sort of father I am to, to my kids and husband and husband. And just in case Mrs. Hartley's listening. Finally, the one golden rule that you have to live a high-performance life, the one thing that you put above all other things. I think your anchor point, so people call it their why or their motivation, um, I think you always need that anchor point on what's going to get you out of bed, what is going to make you do the extra work, what is going to make you eat the certain thing, what is going to make you deal with the criticism and if you read the media the narrative in the media what's going to make you see above that and keep you pushing forward and I told you about my kind of reasons my, my motivations my why's you know early on didn't really have one it was pretty selfish it was just me 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 and then towards the end of my career it was for my family that kind of kept me pushing because everyone talks about sacrifice I never really sacrificed going away it was, it was a choice for me to go away and to work and go away into this environment that was in you know mental attrition and physical kind of work that you went through was a hard place to go hard place to to go and leave your family behind but I thought if I go and do that and always reference back to why I hurt and why I'm tired and why I'm working from six in the morning to ten at night it's so I can leave a legacy for my kids and financially provide for my family and then kind of selfishly I wanted to basically make the most of an opportunity for myself really interesting to sit and sort of break it all down because I guess when you're in it you just plow on through your career it just kind of happens and suddenly you get to your mid-30s and you've got a knee injury and, and you're reflecting so thanks for doing that with us really appreciate off to it. the glue factory mate that's what happens <laughs> it's the cycle for us all thanks a lot no thank you for having me Damien Jake he was a complex guy he was incredibly interesting, wasn't he? Um, he reminded me as we were listening that uh, the New Zealand rugby team, where and I know Dylan obviously originates from there, is they have a saying that you give feedback to the belly, not the back. So you tell people directly to the face what you think of them, how you perceive them. And I think he was a guy with 
some saving self-insight, self-awareness. I think that when you listen to him talk about social media, bring it on, I'll have a read, I want to see it. And when you know you discuss him not being selected to you know to go to certain tournaments and whatever, I get the impression he's probably a guy who's at his best when his back's against the wall. And he probably knows that as well. He he sort of wants the challenge to be laid in front of him so that he can react to it, you know? Yeah, like he said about when he was banned for eight weeks and he flogged himself for that eight-week period, he almost saw it as a challenge to how can he take it to a different level. I think he's a man that obviously has spent his life just backing himself. And I like the fact that he's already turned his mindset around to his legacy and the important thing being family. Because... He has to think that, doesn't he? Rugby's over. Rugby's moved on already without him at both the World Cup and Northampton playing in in the league. So it has to be about family for him now. Yeah, I found that really interesting when he spoke about how he'd used these periods, like the nearly two years worth of bands and the injuries to be able to start making that transition and learn that ultimately it's not your career that defines you, it's who you are as a person and the way you conduct yourself that is going to be the legacy that you leave behind. And coming at it from your sort of highly educated psychological perspective, do you think that he, like the bands were almost necessary to get himself to that point of high performance? You were going to run the risk that he was going to have those, those flashes and those moments of lack of control. I'm not sure they were entirely necessary to deliver the high performance. I think you can achieve that without having to to fall off the horse as frequently as what he did. But I feel that that's who he was. He was he was a man that pushed himself to extremes and there is always a dark side to go into those extremes where sometimes it did cross the line. It was interesting that he, he justified it by saying that he'd never made the same mistake twice. But, you know, he, he was a man that that is the flip side of somebody that's prepared to go to the extremes that it can occasionally flip over into ill-discipline. And I think if there's one takeaway, if I'm listening to this at home, there's one takeaway of how you end up living a high-performance life like him. It's about putting yourself through the pain, isn't it? He talks a lot about it. And I use that phrase, don't sit in the comfy chair. Yeah. He was out of his comfort zone in training every single day, which is where you find your elite performance. That's where you find your own high performance, isn't it? Yeah, Dylan's words there resonated with the famous Muhammad Ali quote that champions aren't made in under the spotlight of a ring. They're made on the road when nobody else is around doing the hard hours. He described it as the struggle, but you're right, that's the willingness not to be in that comfy chair. If you've enjoyed the episode, please do subscribe to High Performance and you can also now listen to us on Google Podcasts and on your Google Home device. And if you like what you hear, we'd also love it if you could leave us a review. It is really helpful. Thanks to Finn Ryan at Rethink Audio for his work on the pod. And do keep an eye out on social media for details of the next special episode of High Performance. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.